Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer in our Iowa City studio. Joining uh, joining me across the table (laughs) with their own mics, we're delighted to have University of Iowa law scholars Christina Tilley and Todd Pettis. Todd is the H. Blair and Joan V. White Chair in Civil Litigation at the UI College of Law. Christina Tilley, Professor of Law at the same College of Law. Christina, Todd, uh, welcome uh, to both of you. Thank you for coming in. Nice to see your faces. Thanks so much for having us. It's great to be here. Yes, thank you, Ben. Uh, The plan is to have uh, Christina and Todd walk us through some key cases selected uh, currently before uh, our U.S. Supreme Court, uh, cases dealing with uh, a number of things, racial gerrymandering, gun rights, free speech on the Internet, among others. It's the current docket uh, on the high court. Uh, And also, uh, they'll be talking a little bit about how their decisions, uh, the decisions of the high court, that is, may affect you. But before we start that, uh, I'd like to get both of your thoughts on the breaking news we had yesterday about our U.S. Supreme Court. It it has adopted its first-ever ethics code, bowing to pressure from Congress and the public. All nine justices signed on to this new code. Um, It has been, I'm sure you've read, uh, instantly criticized for a lack of enforcement uh, mechanism there. In an unsigned statement, the justices of our high court said, Though there has been no formal code, they have long abided by certain standards. And um, so uh, what is in the code? Broadly worded sections uh, relating to things like outside relationships and participation in cases that could benefit family members financially. Uh, As I mentioned, what it doesn't address, and it's up for criticism here, uh, questions about trips, about gifts, or how the court will enforce standards when justices fall short of these standards. Todd, let me start with you. Your reaction, and I know both of you have read this, it runs about eight pages long, this new code. What's what's your reaction? I don't know how much of a difference it's going to make in the end. I think mostly it's, uh, it may make some substantive difference for uh, uh, the justice's behavior. I think a lot of it has to do with perceptions of the court. Um, you know, I think in this country, the notion that anyone is above the law or above the rules, that doesn't sit well with the American public typically. And so the Supreme Court's prior position, uh, which is we don't have a code of ethics, we don't need one, trust us, we're doing fine. And by the way, Congress doesn't have the authority to tell us what to do. So resisting any efforts in Congress to prescribe this rule, they may have been on solid constitutional grounds about that. But from a PR point of view, I don't think it's very good for the court. So this at least puts in place a set of rules which are familiar to people who know about judicial codes of ethics. A lot of the provisions here have just been copied over from the set of rules that guide the lower courts, uh, the lower federal judges. And so it's not like they're a brand new set of principles. They're familiar ones. This court says these are the kinds of rules we've been consulting behind the scenes all along. But what's new is they're putting them in place. Uh, they've, they've tweaked those rules a little bit, which we can talk about if you like. Uh, but it at least it's a step down the road, hopefully taking, from the court's point of view, I think, taking a little bit of the public's heat off the justices, whether it yields some transformation in how they make their decisions and so forth. I don't think this text is likely to make much of a difference. What might make a difference is all the headlines and so forth. I don't think any of the justices 
likely enjoy being in the news in the way, for example, that Justice Thomas has been. Mm-hmm. Christina, your read of this new code. Yeah, I think, um, as Todd says, I, I think the court institutionally, in particular, individual members of the court have been feeling lately um, acutely aware that they are in the middle of uh, something of a crisis of legitimacy uh, and are dealing with that in a multi-front fashion. Uh, I think this is one of those fronts um, to, to try to publicly articulate uh, that they hold themselves to certain expectations and that they invite the public to scrutinize um, the extent to which they abide by those expectations or not. Um, the code itself is interesting, though, in that it you know does um, – it's a bit open textured. It leaves some things undetermined. It leaves open some room textured for means means vague. Uh, sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Let me speak like a person and not a lawyer. Um, vague, vague, or it doesn't address certain things. Um, uh, and I think that there will be some things that uh, you know will have to be sort of discussed uh, between the public and members of the court. Uh, for example, um, the justices are advised not to uh, be speaking at events associated with a political party. Um, Where that line gets drawn, what an event associated with a political party is, I think there is room to debate um, what qualifies and what doesn't qualify. Uh, And I imagine that that will be something that does get discussed in the coming years. Uh, And and there are other provisions, I think, of of the same nature. Mm -hmm. While you're on the topic of of politics, um, in recent months, critics have raised concerns about Justice Thomas's wife, Virginia Thomas. She goes by Ginny uh, and her activities to promote political causes that end up before the court. Uh, Quoting here from NPR's coverage of this, the code says that if a spouse or child living with a justice has a substantial interest in the outcome of a case, financial or any other interest, the justice is supposed to recuse. That would have meant, for example, going on with NPR's coverage, that Justice Thomas would have to recuse in cases in which his wife has played a major role. Last year, Thomas did not recuse. He was the sole dissenter in a case about whether former President Trump's White House records had to be turned over to the House committee investigating the January 6th riot at the U.S. Capitol, uh, despite uh, Ginny Thomas's texts to then White House Chief of Staff uh, Mark Meadows urging him to take steps to overturn the 2020 presidential election. So would that be then a – does this code fix uh, future cases like that? Would a, a Justice Thomas in the future be forced? Can a high court justice be forced to recuse? Or is that, uh, as before, left up to their own judgment? I, I think as before, left up to their own judgment. That This uh, document that they issued yesterday does not put in place, as I think you said in your intro, any kind of enforcement mechanism. There's no one other than those nine justices who's going to sit outside that group and tell that group what they must do. Uh, th- that gr- the members of that group, the justices, can seek advice and uh, can talk with court personnel about how best to read the rules, but it's still ultimately left to them. And in fact, there's things in the rules that I mentioned that they, they tweaked the rules a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, they took what applies to the lower federal court judges and then adapted it to the Supreme Court. And one of the most important adaptations I think that they made has to do with uh, – how readily a justice ought to recuse him or herself. If you're a lower federal court judge, meaning you're a trial-level judge or an, 
an ordinary intermediate appellate court, but not the Supreme Court. There's quite a few of you. So if you decide not to hear a case, there's a lot of other federal judges, a a pretty large pool that we can pull from and say, okay, well, we're going to put this person in your place instead. The Supreme Court doesn't have that. They have nine. And so if one of them decides not to hear a case, that means we're down to eight which means there's a greater likelihood of a tie. We've lost one-ninth of the court's expertise. We can't replace them with someone else. And so the rules say, you know, don't, don't go recusing yourself just at the drop of a hat. Mm. Uh, and so whether there's anything in these rules that make clear that Justice Thomas should have recused himself before, I, it's not obvious to me what the answer is to that question under these rules. You, you were describing one of them about a spouse's interest. That's... Uh, in the, the way the, the rules are written, that's all under the broad heading of when would a reasonable person doubt that the justice is going to be unbiased. And it doesn't say when could a reasonable person doubt the justice fairness is would a reasonable. There's a difference in the law. If you say because reasonable people can disagree, but well, it's tilted a little bit. Say, no, almost it just stops but, short of saying but, but any reasonable, reasonable people would say Todd that getting a lavish gift and in this category a lavish gift Justice Thomas a gift that well we can say is worth hundreds of thousands of dollars yes. in his case yes. it's reasonable to th- think that that is is not something that you should be doing and then fairly judging cases isn't it the question i agree with you as far as you went right then the question would be so in which particular cases should he have disqualified himself by virtue of those lavish gifts? I mean, at one level, I would say a reasonable person could say, without respect to the cases that you're hearing, this just does not look good. We should not have wealthy members of the public flying people around in private planes, paying, you know, paying debts and so forth and, uh, and all kinds of things. It's, it's not a good look for the court, even if you can't point to a particular case. But if we're going to talk about recusals, we have to say, okay, so in which individual cases should Justice Thomas then have said, you know, I probably can't be perceived as fair in this particular case. Uh, and so if we're going to close the loop on the kinds of things that you just mentioned, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of gifts, I think we would need to point to particular cases uh, rather than just look more broadly at is should you not even be accepting these things in the first place? Yeah. Uh, the progressive group Take Back the Court said in a statement, and let me quote this, with 53 uses of the word should, speaking of this code, and only six of the word must, the court's new code of ethics reads a lot more like a friendly suggestion than a binding enforceable guideline. You've read the entire document, Christina Tilley. Would you agree with that criticism? I think, uh, yeah, I I don't think that's an unfair criticism. I I suspect that members of the court would say, um, first of all, you know, in terms of a government with three branches and separation of powers, um, they sit at the top of the judiciary. And to come up with um, somebody who would enforce all those musts uh, opens its own sort of Pandora's box. So Mm -hmm. there's a reason I think they would say um, that they have used a lot of shoulds and not a lot of musts. Um, I, I think they also would say, you know, the information forcing capacity of a document like this is enough to start a conversation, uh, make the public aware of what they're doing and not doing, and that that in and of itself is advancing the court's legitimacy without, you know, getting into a sort of three-branch circus of um, recusals, impeachments, and and um, some of what we see in the other branches of government. About a minute before we have to go to break, uh, but to, to wind this up, where does it go from here? Does Congress still possibly have a role? Uh, 
They might claim a role. I think the court may resist their claim of that role. Again, as Christina said, three independent branches of government. The Supreme Court's position is Congress doesn't have the authority. Uh, Members of the Supreme Court, at least, have taken the position that Congress doesn't have the authority to set out binding policeable rules that the courts must that the Supreme Court must follow. That's a little bit just very quickly like we face with respect to the presidency sometimes. We can talk about things that the president, the head of the executive branch might do that we think are outrageous. How who can force him not to, especially when the president says all the all the uh, attorney general and so forth, they all work for me. Mm-hmm. And I'll fire them if I don't like what they're doing. So accountability at the very top is always a tricky thing. University of Iowa Law Scholars live with us this hour. Todd Pettis and Christina Tilley. Join us 1-866-780-9100 or email river to river at iowapublicradio.org. We'll dig into some key cases this term with the High Court in just a moment. Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. And we are back with more of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Uh, A couple times a year, we like to check in uh, to find out um, and uh, learn about the cases before our nation's highest court. That's what we're doing today with University of Iowa College of Law scholars Christina Tilly and Todd Pettis. Uh, for the remainder of the hour, we want to walk through these cases quickly, spending a few minutes on each one and uh, find out what they may mean for our society and uh, possibly for you and me. Christina, I'd like to go to you first of all. We have a case that involves racial gerrymandering, a, a South Carolina congressional map at the center of this dispute. How did this start? Tell us the story. Yes. Yeah, so it's it's a story about race, um, but but foremost, or, or to begin with, it's a story about math. Um, so after the 2020 census, South Carolina had to redraw its congressional districts in order to keep them consistent with the Supreme Court's expectation under the Equal Protection Clause of one person, one vote, meaning that each district should have roughly the same number of people in it so that everybody's votes count equally. So they were aiming for districts, seven districts of 730,000 people each. Well, it turned out uh, that they learned through the census that District 1, which had been a longtime Republican stronghold, was overpopulated by about 88,000 people, whereas District 6, adjacent, uh, which is uh, Representative Jim Clyburn's district, was underpopulated by about 85,000 people. So they needed to adjust the numbers. Um, The sort of most modest way of doing that might have been just to take the 88,000 and plop them into District Mm -hmm. 6. That is not, in fact, what the map drawers in South Carolina did. What they wound up doing was moving 53,000 residents um, out of Clyburn's district into the District 1, which is a majority white district, and then moving 140,000 residents out of District 1, the white district, and into Clyburn's district. Now, if they were if the predominant motivation for doing that was to make the districts one majority black and the other majority white, that would be a problem and unconstitutional uh, under the 14th Amendment. Um, what the mapmakers said was that they were 
trying to achieve a partisan gerrymander to make sure they had one reliable Republican district and one reliable Democratic district, which is permissible under Supreme Mm -hmm. Court jurisprudence. The tricky thing, of course, is that um, race is an excellent predictor of party affiliation. So one way to achieve a partisan gerrymander is to use race as the predominating factor for allocating membership of a district. Um, it's it's impermissible, but it's actually a very effective proxy, especially where they had really limited data on the voting preferences of the people in District 1. Um, all they had was the data from the 2020 presidential election, which in some ways was an outlier and not a very helpful predictor. So that's kind of the background. So you've got a black voter and the NAACP in South Carolina challenging the redistricting as uh, being primarily motivated by race. To finish up with this, do we have an indication? I think this has already been heard, but there is no ruling yet. What are the implications of uh, of a ruling one way or another here? So, yeah, the, the court heard arguments in the case. They, they seemed really skeptical of the claim that this was primarily motivated by race. Um, they seemed to accept South Carolina's claim that they were trying to guarantee a, a reliable Republican district, and that was a permissible thing to do. Short term, um, that has implications, obviously, for upcoming elections in South Carolina if this map is upheld. For 2024. Mm-hmm. Um, Long term, it would have implications for all congressional redistricting. Um, How it, so? How so? Because it would permit those uh, drawing maps to um, claim that they were achieving a partisan gerrymander by taking into account information about the party preferences of uh, voters by race. Um, so it really kind of conflates those, uh, permits the conflation of those two considerations, whereas in the past they were treated as separate considerations, one permissible and one impermissible. Mm-hmm. To finish up, and do you have a feeling which way it will go here? Uh, the court seemed very sympathetic to South Carolina's argument that this was a, permis- a permissible uh, partisan gerrymander. They seemed um, to really want to get into the record of the district court, which is an unusual thing for the court to do in a case like this. Typically, they're not diving into the record mm-hmm. and getting their hands dirty with it. But here they seem to want to and seem to think that uh, it was a case where they should be doing that, which is a little bit of a departure from what we would call the standard of review that's usually used in a case like this. Um, but they seemed enthusiastic about doing that. It's River to River from IPR News. Ben Kiefer with law scholars Christina Tilley and Todd Pettis of the University of Iowa College of Law. Todd, let's pivot over to you. Um, a case, um, U.S. v. Rahimi. Uh, this is a case argued earlier this month, I believe, involving gun rights. Tell us the story. Yeah, starting in 2008, the Supreme Court really entered the Second Amendment territory and started to tell us a lot more than we'd known before about uh, a person's right to have a gun. And so in in 2008 and then again in 2010, the Supreme Court found that at a minimum we have a right to have a – most people have a right to have a handgun in their home for self-defense. And then a couple years ago in a case called New York State uh, Pistol and Rifle Association versus Bruin, the Supreme Court said you also have a right to carry a gun outside your home for self-defense. The case that's up now uh, focuses on something a little different, but again, having to do with gun rights. There's federal law that says that if you uh, have had a protective order issued against you for domestic violence, that you cannot have a gun. And Rahimi, uh, uh, Zaki Rahimi, the the guy in our case here, he had assaulted his uh, then-girlfriend at the time, 
had dragged her across the ground, shoved her into a car, banging her head along the way. A witness saw that. He fired a gun at the witness. Uh, he subsequently is alleged to have fired guns in road rage incidents and so forth. And uh, after assaulting his girlfriend, she had obtained a protective order barring him from coming near her. And so under federal law, because he had been the target of this protective order, he's not supposed to have a gun. When he's out there allegedly shooting guns and road rage incidents and so forth, he becomes a suspect in those shootings. Police go to his house and they find out that indeed he has guns in his home. And that's a violation of federal law because he's got this protective order. He says, I have a Second Amendment right to have a gun in my home, even though I've had this protective order issued. Okay, Mm -hmm. so the, the, the question here is, does our Second Amendment right, does a person's Second Amendment right to possess guns, uh, stand up even in the face of having been accused of domestic violence and having a court order uh, issued against you to stay away from uh, someone, an intimate member of the family or the household that, uh, that you have assaulted. So that's the question. Uh, it's not a sympathetic plaintiff. Uh, he, unlike the prior cases, you know, the whole, I mentioned the case back in 2008. That's a guy who made his living defending federal judges, the very sympathetic plaintiff. This is not when, when we say plaintiff. sympathetic or unsympathetic, what do you mean what by I that? What I mean is, is it someone whose story is likely to appeal to the judge's hearts? Mm. Uh, is it someone the judges? So, for example, in 2008, a case called Heller versus District of Columbia, Dick Heller was a member of a federal police force whose job was to protect federal judges. That's the man who was the plaintiff when the Supreme Court started down this road and said, well, yeah, you have a right to have a handgun in your home for self-defense. And litigants, or, or rather uh, attorneys, spend a lot of time looking for kind of an ideal plaintiff to bring cases like this. That luxury is not had here because anybody who's going to challenge this law has been accused of domestic violence and has had a protective order issued against them. The legal question here, which I think is potentially very significant, both for domestic violence cases, but for all kinds of gun rights cases, the court has said in this case from a couple of years ago, the New York case that I mentioned about guns outside the home. In that case, the court said when we our test for figuring out whether a law does or does not violate the Second Amendment depends on whether we have a tradition in this country of regulating gun rights in the kind of way that's being challenged in the present case. And so right now, for example, we have a case about guns and domestic violence. And so the inquiry is, do we have a tradition of withholding gun rights from people like Rahimi? That's a uh, a difficult question to frame at the outset, much less answer, because you have to decide kind of at what level of abstraction are you going to frame that? Or, do we have to or go back? how far back in time, perhaps? Well, we go back to the founding when the Second Amendment came. Yeah, so we're going back to uh, the late 1700s. For legal reasons, we'd also look at the mid-1800s. But a long time, 150, 200 years ago, well, domestic violence was not you know, it was a factual thing, certainly, but it wasn't a legal thing where the law was out there cracking down on domestic And men violence. literally owned their wives. Absolutely. And so if we're going to go back and say our, our historical inquiry is focused on whether we, have had a, whether we have a history going back that far of taking guns away from people who are, have been accused of domestic violence, we're not likely to find much. And, so, and that's what Rahimi is saying we should be doing, something that our historical inquiry needs to be very narrowly uh, focused on cases like his. The federal government is saying, no, what the question should be, do we have a tradition of withholding guns from dangerous people? And if that's the case, then we can find all kinds of factual specifics. British loyalists, the the winning side in the revolution, mm-hmm. took their guns away. 
people who are known to be mentally unstable. We have a tradition of taking their guns away. So what are we looking for exactly historically? The court's answer to that question will be very important. Yeah. And to finish up and move on, uh, any indication? uh, This was argued, I believe, in early November, earlier this month. Any indication how they will rule? The justices seemed quite skeptical of Rahimi's claim uh, to read, to judge just on oral argument. I don't think the justices are eager to rule in his favor. I think a win for the federal government is more likely than not. The terms of the win, what the court says about the test and the nature of the historical inquiry will be very important for uh, gun laws of all kinds and how this historical test that has just recently been introduced to us is actually going to be carried out. Mm-hmm. If I could interject just sure. for a minute, <clears throat> I am really interested to see what the court does in this case, in part because it, it in a way, is a puzzle piece with a case from last term, United States versus Counterman, um, a case um, where um, uh, a gentleman who was, I think, uh, cyberstalking is the popular word I would use, cyberstalking a woman, um, and a protective order was issued against him, um, the court found that um, cyber threats um, did not rise to the level of true threats um, that were outside First Amendment protection. And so that was portrayed in the popular press as sort of a uh, an opportunity for the courts to um, speak out against stalking, take action against stalking and sort of gendered threats, uh, an opportunity that the court didn't take. Um, so this is sort of the second pitch. I think it's, it's another chance for the court to um, take a position on gendered threats. And it seems like it might go the other way. And I think in, in a way, uh, there might be some aspect of wanting to, you know, pair those two together and, you know, portray themselves as not uh, insensible to the reality of these kinds of threats. Mm-hmm. About five minutes before we go to break, I think we can squeeze in one more from uh, you, Christina. You selected here a, a pair of cases that would overrule a 1984 decision in Chevron v. Natural Resources Defense Council. This is a bit involved. It uh, involves um, uh, agencies and their interpretations of statutes. Yeah, that's exactly right. So, you know, uh, if we're speaking about sympathetic uh, plaintiffs, the plaintiffs in this case are actually very sympathetic. They're herring fishermen, family fishermen. Um, And in fact, if anyone has seen the Academy Award nominated movie CODA, um, which focused on a family that had a sort of herring fishery, um, the actual regulation that's being challenged in this case was mentioned in that movie, I I understand. Um, And this is a regulation that um, says there's a federal law that requires uh, fishing vessels to bring a monitor on board to kind of see, collect data and see what the fisheries are doing in terms of... A person who is a monitor. Exactly correct. To make sure that they're... um, that the that uh, areas aren't getting overfished. That's mm, basically mm-hmm. the purpose of the statute. But the question is, who has to pay for that federal monitor that rides on the vessel? Um, the National Marine Fisheries Service reached the conclusion that the family fisherman has to pay for that monitor, which of course is a big financial obligation. So these family uh, fishermen are, are contesting the fishery service interpretation of the statute, which leads us to the Chevron Doctrine, this 1984 doctrine that says when Congress has adopted a statute that is silent or ambiguous on a precise question – and the agency uh, adopts a reasonable interpretation of the statute that a reviewing court then has to defer to the agency's reasonable interpretation of the statute. Now, in 1984, Chevron wasn't all that controversial. 
Um, in fact, it was used um, in a case where the agency was um, interpreting an environmental statute in a sort of pro-industry fashion. But in the years since then, Chevron has become uh, incredibly controversial. Um, it's seen as sort of disabling the role of the judicial branch in reviewing congressional statutes and sort of aggrandizing agencies that are operating as part of the executive branch. Um, and um, the, it's seen as sort of a pro-regulatory um, mm -hmm. uh, point of view. So the fisheries in this case are urging that it's time to overrule Chevron or cut back on it very significantly. Um, if that happened, you know, a lot of people are saying that um, Chevron is such a bedrock around which the entire what we would call administrative state, you know, all the alphabet agencies um, that are producing all the regulations that give us, you know, safe toys, safe highways and so forth, um, that if we undo Chevron, we are really going to be tying the hands of some of those agencies. Um, on the other hand, a lot of people say, you know, that, that, that maybe that's not all to the bad. Some of these yeah. regulations are pretty onerous. Right, right. It reminds me a little bit of the uh, water of the U.S., if I'm getting that correct. I mean, there is the interpretation. The, the EPA is in charge of keeping our waters to a certain standard. But what are the waters? How small of a tributary is uh, a U.S. water? So s similar thing? Am I on? on? Well, I, I mean, I think it's of a piece. There is a, there's a real movement these days um, to sort of challenge a lot of what's been taken for granted in terms of these uh, agency uh statutes and the regulations that agencies are promulgating, um, whereas for many years that was embraced as sort of a necessary way to get technical expertise into government. Uh, in the past, you know, five, ten years, there's been real pushback on that. In fact, there's another case in front of the court this term that's kind of of a piece with this. Um, it's an SEC case, but it's basically challenging what's known as the non-delegation doctrine. Um, or not challenging, it's trying to revive the non-delegation doctrine to basically say that Congress really shouldn't be delegating these technical questions to agencies, that that's, you know, they were elected to to pass these statutes themselves and they should be doing it and they shouldn't be having scientists do it. One other thing I will mention about mm -hmm. this pair of cases, mm -hmm. um, in the first case that the court took, uh, Katanji Brown-Jackson was recused because she participated in the decision below. Um, it's just very recent, within the past couple of weeks, that the court granted a second case, and it's a carbon copy of the first, um, but it's out of the First Circuit, which means that Justice Jackson is not recused from the case. So I thought that was sort of an interesting indication that the court wanted to be at full capacity to really review this Chevron doctrine. They wanted all nine justices, um, not that, that reduced court of eight that Todd was referring to earlier. So she will be able to participate in the um, second case. Mm -hmm. uh, any indication of where this will go? Um, we just have a few seconds before the break. I, I don't know that there's any indication of where it'll go. I will tell you that Justices Barrett, Kavanaugh, uh, Kagan, Scalia, and Breyer have all written scholarly articles on Chevron, which are getting cited all over the briefs that are written in these cases. So uh, the justices are definitely engaged. All right. We'll be back after a short break with our legal scholars this hour, Christina Tilley and Todd Pettis of the University of Iowa College of Law. Several more cases to get to. Uh, coming up next, Todd will introduce us to a case uh, argued back in October that involves a civil rights tester. We'll find out what that is in just a moment. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. 
Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Back midstream in this edition of River to River from IPR News, I'm Ben Kiefer. We have two legal scholars from the University of Iowa College of Law, Todd Pettis and Christina Tilley, walking us through some key cases before our high court uh, this term. Let's continue. Uh, Todd Pettis, uh, this was argued in October, and I mentioned before the break, civil rights tester. What is a civil rights tester and what happened here? Well, I'll introduce your uh, civil rights testers to you this way. Her name is Deborah Lawfer, this particular civil rights tester. She has some disabilities that means she needs a wheelchair to travel any kind of long distances, and her vision is impaired. The, uh, there's a federal law that's kind of tied up with the Americans with Disabilities Act that says that hotels need to make clear on their websites whether they provide accommodations for people with disabilities. And Deborah Lawfer has taken this on as a real cause. She sits at home in Florida with no intention of doing any traveling herself, scouring the web for hotel websites to see whether, in fact, they provide information about whether they can accommodate disabilities. And if they don't, she sues them. And she has sued over 600 hotels across the country this way. Mm. And her cause is trying to force these hotels to comply with the law. She found a little inn on the southern coast of Maine, and they did not have uh, any of this information. So she sued them. That's the other part. They were owned by a chain called Akison Hotels. Uh, so that's the lawsuit. Uh, the question is, the legal question here is whether she has suffered any harm, because if anyone wants to sue in federal court, even if the case has nothing to do with disabilities, if you want to sue in federal court, you have to have what we call standing. And at the heart of having standing is you yourself personally have suffered some kind of injury. Deborah Lawfer herself does not intend to travel. All she has done is encounter the website where the law entitles, I suppose, her as the reader to see information there about disability accommodation, but she doesn't intend to put that information to use. And so has she suffered an injury sufficient to get her into the fed, through the federal courthouse door? One might say, no, she has not because she's not going to travel. The problem is there's a case uh, from about 40 years ago called Haven's Realty. And it involved a different kind of civil rights tester. This was, in this instance, a black woman who was looking for violations of the Federal Housing Act, looking for instances of racial discrimination. And so she would go to landlords with no intention of actually renting the apartment herself, mm -hmm. but basically say to the landlord, do you have any apartments available? And lo and behold, she and her white tester partner found that if the white tester went to the landlord and said, do you have any apartments for rent? The landlord would say, sure, I've got three or four. Can I show them to you? When she, the black woman, would go and ask the landlord, the landlord would say, nope, we're full up, sorry. And so they had filed a lawsuit under the Federal uh, uh, Housing Act alleging race discrimination. And the Supreme Court held in that case that the black tester had suffered enough harm, even though she didn't intend to uh, rent the apartment, she had suffered enough harm to get her through the federal courthouse door so she could carry on then with her lawsuit. And so the big issue here, and people can make their own decision from home, has Deborah Lawfer sitting at her home in Florida been injured in any way comparable to what the tester did with respect to the housing claim. And so if you're, a, if you're a, on the court looking at these things, you have a few options. You could say, as some might, that that 1980s case was wrongly decided, and you can overturn it. Or you can say that it was rightly decided, and Deborah Lawfer is either similar to the black 
real estate tester or she's not similar. And the case will probably turn on the court's uh, resolution of that question. Mm, Interesting. Moving along to another uh, case from a pair of cases uh, to Christina here, both argued back in October, at the end of October, involving the limit of free speech on the Internet. Tell us about these. Well, I will tell you about them, but I have to apologize that uh, the free speech issue is really uh, down the road. The immediate issue that the court is going to have to resolve in these cases turns on uh, a slightly more technical concept. That's the concept known as state action. So what's going on in these cases? And there are two cases. One involves a couple of local school board members. The other one involves a city manager uh, in Port Huron, Michigan. All three of these people had social media accounts, uh, Facebook and Twitter. Um, On those accounts, they did a variety of things, cat videos, uh, information about their families. And then from time to time, they would discuss uh, items having to do with their roles in government. Um, Some commenters uh, tried to communicate with them their reactions to the posts about government. Some parents um, commented uh, a lot to the uh, school board members, and somebody commented to the city manager who was, you know, expressing some disappointment with how the city handled the COVID-19 pandemic. Ultimately, all three of these uh, government officials um, blocked the commenters so that they couldn't see those comments anymore. Uh, The commenters then wanted to bring a free speech claim um, against the government officials. But of course, the First Amendment only applies against the government, not against private individuals. So if I went into the high V and started screaming, um, there's really nothing to prevent the high V from asking me to leave because they're a private you know, entity. Uh, I don't have First Amendment rights for the most part in a high V. Um, so the question really is, are these government officials acting more like the local high V in blocking those comments, or are they acting more like somebody at City Hall who's kind of you know, barring the door and saying, well, you can't come in and make a comment that I can hear? Um, so that's that's really what the court is having to decide in these case. Do they qua- ca- cases. Do they qualify as state actors, in which case the First Amendment arguably would apply to them? Or are they acting as private individuals, in which case the First Amendment probably wouldn't apply to them? Um, what the court's trying to come up with here is a test to help them distinguish, which is a really hard thing to do. Um, in the law, we treat public people and private people differently in different scenarios. But the modern reality is that we walk through the world as public and private simultaneously. So trying to disaggregate when I'm acting as a private person versus a you know a public person or a state actor is an incredibly hard thing to do. Um, the federal government one was trying to make the analogy that a Facebook page is like private property, uh, meaning that most of what someone does on it is not state action. The justices did not seem to buy that argument at all. They were borderline amused by it. Mm. Um, The um, parents were trying to make the argument that sort of anything you do, any custom or practice that you pursue related to your government position counts as state action. That's a pretty broad test. And then the local officials were urging kind of an intermediate test saying if you do anything that is pursuant to um, a legal duty or authority, that counts as state action. But if you're doing sort of informal things that you're not obliged to do by law, that wouldn't count as state action. The justices did seem to sort of gravitate towards that middle ground, um, but it's pretty unclear um, what they're going to do, how they're going to do it, and really how durable 
the test they devise will be because the nature of social media is changing so quickly. It might be the kind of test that's good for, you know, five years until we've got the next iteration of social media and then it's no longer a useful test. Mm -hmm. Todd, let's turn to you with our final pair of cases, uh, some laws in Texas and Florida that would regulate how large social media companies control content posted on their sites, which we've had in the news quite a bit. Yeah, and we're talking, as you say, about large social media companies. So ones like Facebook, YouTube, uh, X, formerly known as Twitter, those are kind of the quintessential examples. And what Texas and Florida have done, they've done it in different ways, but the common thread here in what they've done is they've tried to place sharp restrictions on those social media companies' ability to screen your comments and your postings and delete them or really de-escalate them or de-platform you altogether and throw you off their site. Uh, Texas and Florida have tried to limit these social media companies' ability to do that. And these companies do this all the time, millions and millions and millions of times in a given month, uh, day, week, whatever time period you want to choose. And so uh, the question, the legal question here that the Supreme Court has agreed to hear is to what degree are those social companies themselves exercising their own free speech rights when they decide what they're going to send out over their platform? You and I and others will generate the content. We'll be the one posting videos or photos or memes or whatever we're putting up on these social media companies. But the social media companies do then curate it. They might look at us and say, we're throwing you off the platform. Or they might look at us and say, we want to use our algorithms to really de-emphasize this person's speech. Or they might take a particular comment and delete that comment. Are the social media companies themselves exercising, because they're private companies, Mm -hmm. do they have a First Amendment right to decide what's going to come out over their platforms? Because if they do, then laws like the Texas law and the Florida law are going to have to pass some pretty stringent analysis for violating these social media companies' free speech rights if indeed they have those kinds of rights. And it's easy to see huge implications, uh, political or otherwise, depending on uh, how this ruling comes out. Enormous. I think that depending on what the court says, this uh, what they say here has the potential to be the maybe the most important case in a generation for w- how our social media companies can be policed, how they can be regulated, or the extent to which they're exempt from regulation because they're similar to a newspaper. You know, if the government wants to pass a law telling the Des Moines Register uh, what they do, what they have to include in the paper, what you know, the editorial decisions that the Des Moines Register makes, that. Uh, you know, we know intuitively, and it's right, that the Des Moines Register has free speech rights uh, to make its own editorial decisions. Social media companies are claiming the same kind of editorial discretion to shape their content, and the governments in Florida and Texas aren't buying it, saying that actually we can dictate to them what they're going to do and basically make it impossible for them to manage their sites in those ways. Mm-hmm. I wanted to get some listener comments in um, in the final five minutes of here. Perhaps you have a reaction to what they say, perhaps not. Anne in Cedar Rapids listening uh, writes, I am a retired hospital pharmacist. This goes back to our earlier new ethics code that was just issued by the U.S. Supreme Court. She says, we used to have drug reps bring in lunch and give a presentation on their company's new drug or therapy. They would present background studies, statistics, etc., then open up for questions from us. Believe me, we could drill down on some things they had presented. But then the regulatory agencies said no more, no more freebies that could possibly influence us as care providers, 
coffee mugs, T-shirts, lunches, etc. Yes, we have the highest court in the land able to accept hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of gifts with the expectation that these would not influence them? Triple question mark, exclamation point on that. <laughs> so I think this does connect with everyday people. That How can you expect huge, really huge gifts, not little knickknacks, not to influence your, your decision? Yeah, you said her name was Anne. Cedar Rapids. Uh, Anne and Cedar Rapids. Uh, yeah. yes. I think Anne and Cedar Rapids' perception is why the Supreme Court issued its code of con or its code of ethics yesterday. It's for exactly that kind of perception uh, that the, the the idea that the court would regard itself as beyond regulation, beyond rules, trust us. Uh, that's why we got that. Now, whether it's going to do anything to change those realities. That's a harder question because you have to try to imagine who in our constitutional system would have the authority to tell a Supreme Court justice, you must recuse yourself. Our Constitution isn't written in a way that contemplates someone with power over the courts in that way. We can change that. We could amend the Constitution. We could create an Mm -hmm. entity like that. We could interpret the Constitution very differently than we have. But that's the challenge. It's the Supreme Court at the top. Who would be superior to them to write the rules and then enforce those rules? But uh, Well, I'm going to hop in and say I think the answer is Anne. Anne is is (laughs) – I mean I I think – the court in in the past, I mean, always over its history, but markedly in the past two or three years, has really positioned itself as a very salient uh, actor in public discourse. Uh, and I think the public is paying very close attention, closer attention than they might have 10 or 15 years ago. And they are speaking robustly. People like Anne, ProPublica, The New York Times are using their First Amendment rights to really dig into what the justices are doing. And there is a sense of disenchantment, I think, that is being expressed in, you know, in various public uh, fora that I, I think has resulted in, you know, what we might call a toothless code, but it's it's a code. And mm-hmm. may, maybe teeth will get added over time if Anne continues to speak up. <laughs> right. In the couple minutes we have remaining, I wanted to mention an issue that I know is uh, being watched by so many of our listeners, uh, but did not come up in any of the court cases today. In the coming months, according to the report, it, reporting the court will very likely uh, agree to hear major a major abortion case, uh, perhaps severely limiting the availability of a drug in, used in more than half of pregnancy terminations. Uh, and the decision, according to New York Times reporting, could come in June. That would make it two years after the court overturned Roe v. Wade. Thoughts on whether the high court will agree to hear this case uh, and whether the court's six Republican appointees will continue to move abortion laws in this country to the right. Uh, This case is more connected than one might immediately think to what Christina was talking about earlier about the power of administrative agencies. Christina was talking about these things that are known to people in the law, like the Chevron doctrine and the non-delegation doctrine. For the average listener at home, those are just doctrines that have to do with how much power do these administrative agencies like the IRS, the EEOC, the NTSB, the FCC, as Christina said, these alphabet agencies that we know by their acronyms, how much power do they have in American government? How much power do they have in our society? In this particular case, the FDA has said uh, that mifepristone is safe uh, to be administered over with, through telemedicine, for example. You don't have to see the doctor in person. Uh, and 
a court has questioned that and a court has dug into the safety record and has concluded that in its judgment, it's actually not safe. Are we going to trust the experts at the agency? Are we going to trust the court? Where exactly does that power lie? And that's really the fulcrum, I think, that that case is going to turn on. So, yes, it's about abortion rights and and uh methods of terminating pregnancy. It's also about the power of agencies and the, the, the balance of power between what's the role of courts. The Chevron doctrine that Christina was talking about has to do with courts trying to interpret statutes, or should they defer to how agencies have interpreted statutes? This is another kind of deference question case. Mm-hmm. Or should, in fact, Congress write the statutes so that they are not subject to interpretation at all? Should they stake out a clearer claim? One of the things that I think is kind of interesting about the Mifepristone case, and I really, really hate injecting politics into um, jurisprudence, um, but I think it's unavoidable to say that one of the litigators in the case is Aaron Hawley, who's a law professor, but who happens to be married to Senator Josh Hawley. So, you know, there there is, I think, an overlay potentially of um, values politics happening. Okay, fascinating. We've run out of time. Christina Tilley, professor of law at the University of Iowa College of Law. Todd Pettis, also professor of law at the UI College of Law. Thanks for stepping into our studio. Wow, what an hour. Fascinating. Thanks for the listener input. And we look forward to having you both back in our studio again. Thank you both. Thank you. It's a lot of fun. Always is. Politics Wednesday tomorrow on our program. Political scientists Donna Hoffman and Evan Renfro of the University of Northern Iowa. Today's program produced by Samantha McIntosh with help from Danny Gear. I'm Ben Kiefer. Thanks for joining us. 